You're listening to What's Wrong With This Picture? Freaky Films and Why We Frickin' Love Them. Hi, I'm Lindsay McCullough. And I'm Gary Mulholland. And in each episode of What's Wrong With This Picture, we'll be looking at a movie we think is weird and wonderful. We sometimes do include the endings where it's key to what the film is, so please be prepared for that. So anyway, buckle up and join us on a journey to dangerous cities, suburbia and other fantasy worlds. It's going to be a wild ride. In this episode, we are looking at The Manchurian Candidate, the 1962 movie directed by John Frankenheimer and written for the screen by George Axelrod from the novel by Richard Condon. It stars Frank Sinatra as Major Ben Marco, Lawrence Harvey as Raymond Shaw, Janet Leigh as Rosie, and Angela Lansbury as Shaw's mother, who is now Mrs Islin. Yeah, and it's fair to say this one's a doozy, I think. The film opens uh, with a platoon on patrol in Korea during the Korean War, and uh, Major Marco and Raymond Shaw are part of this platoon. It soon becomes clear that they've been betrayed by their Korean guide and they've been captured. When we flash forward to the present day, it turns out that the whole platoon has been brainwashed, with Raymond especially being marked out for a specific project, more of which later. Meanwhile, his mother, uh, Mrs Islin, and her senator husband, both kind of right-wing cranks and aiming to kind of oust any communists they find, are deciding on a run for the vice presidency. So how these two stories connect will become clear over the course of the film. So buckle up, I think it's fair to say that this film is uh, quite a ride. So yes. Gary, yes. why do we think this is a weird film? Um, well, I think, first of all, um, it's a film based on the idea that um, an entire platoon of American soldiers have been brainwashed into a very complicated um, Ameri- sort of anti-American conspiracy theory by a coalition of every communist country in the world. <laughs> um, so I think it's starting premise. Um, you know, it sets us up for weirdness. Um, but I think also um, the whole idea of brainwashing, which I think was pretty was more of a thing that turned up in films you know in the 60s but um looks increasingly odd and i think is a really good way of for people of the time to make sense of paranoia yeah absolutely so um yeah i think the biggest weirdness of the film is wow where do we start uh, the black and white photography and the way frankenheimer john frankenheimer continually changes from very, very documentary-looking footage to very film noir-looking footage to Italian neo-realist-looking footage to things that look are being shown on TV that look like they're being filmed on TV. Um, he does this all the time. He shoots characters from the most bizarre of angles to try and express how they're feeling at the time. He tilts the camera so every time yeah, you yeah. know anybody's feeling uncertain, he tilts the camera. The world is skewed. Yeah, the world is skewed. Um, he has uh, a lead actor in it who is having to kind of go between the world's worst human being and a complete zombie. Um, he has Frank Sinatra in a part where instead of his usual surety or vulnerability, he's playing total confusion because he hasn't really yeah. got a clue for most of the film what on earth is happening. Yeah. Um, and there's an in- incest uh, subplot. Which we'll come to. Which we'll come to. Thank you. 
Um, I'd really like to talk about the dream sequence and how that's filmed. So we see two versions of the dream sequence and the first is Sinatra's and he wakes up sweating for this nightmare. So what, what we see is this platoon, they're sitting on a stage. I'm just going to try and describe this. And they, they seem to be like in a, a posh hotel conservatory. Mm-hmm. There's various women in, in kind of flowery hats and they are ostensibly hearing a talk about hydrangeas. So there's a very kind of boring woman. Actually, one of the women who, uh, I don't know if you remember the Waltons and the two, oh, really? the two old it's women Waltons, who used to, used to make the I hooch. I did not notice that. Uh, she's, she's one of the main women. Um, so she's wearing a flowery hat. She's talking about hydrangeas. Hydrina, and the camera kind of goes along. It's a very mobile camera and you can imagine it maybe sitting in the room turning 360 degrees so it yeah. goes along and you see all the soldiers in the platoon and all these ladies in the in the flowery hats it turns round and shows you the audience which is more ladies in the flowery hats and as it's turning round and it's 360 it comes back to the stage back back to the dais this looks like one shot i can't i couldn't yeah. see the cut i yeah. couldn't see the cut but by the time it comes back to the dais and we see the soldiers again the background has changed and there are massive pictures of mao and, and stalin. stalin yeah and the lady with the flowery hat is now i guess a chinese scientist uh, army scientist general something like that yeah absolutely and he's he's talking to the audience who we now see as the camera continues its 360 rotation for a second go round these are communist high-ups. These are Chinese and Russian army generals, kind of political leaders, and they're now sitting in a lecture theatre. They're not in a conservatory. It's really incredibly clever. By the time that the camera's doing its second go-round, so we see the lecture theatre mm. theater instead of the conservatory, there has been a cut because that is a different stage, different setting. Yeah. The first time, but The though, first time, yeah, the first I couldn't time, see the cut. I couldn't see the cut. And I think what they've done is they've had to quickly change the background behind the, the, the kind of lectern that the speaker's at so that now it's the communist leaders instead of kind of flowers on trellises. And you just imagine that in, in real time. It's, it's pretty impressive, actually. It is really impressive. And I think the reason why Frankenheimer was able to do these kind of things is because he made his name in television. And um, he was part of what what was called the American Golden Age of TV. Right, yeah. And he and Sidney Lumet, the the future film director, are kind of the two most famous alumni of this period of 50s television. Um, And his specialism was live broadcasts. Um, People, you know, it got quite a a thing, a bit of a um, trend in America at the time to do live plays and live kind of films and, and that sort of thing, live performances. Not not shot as live, but live. Uh, it's happening and it's being beamed into your living room. And Frankenheimer became very, very um, interested and committed to the idea of TV looks boring. Um, so I've got to find ways to make something like the live performance of a theatre play look like something a bit better than a television camera pointed at a theatre play. Yeah. How do I do those kind yeah. of things? And he said that, you know, uh, that he was quoted about the Manchurian Candidate saying, I was using the techniques I used to use in those broadcasts. Yeah. So something like that shot, yeah, it really was. A whole bunch of people suddenly running out of shot, all changing, getting, yeah. you know, uh, doing the, uh, redressing yeah, yeah. the yeah. set, etc., etc., and then being in position by the time the yeah. camera ba- came round because that's what he used to do on TV. Yeah. And it's absolutely brilliant. A few comedy shows have tried that, haven't they? Like, I think Modern Family did it. I think ER did a live episode. Yeah, yeah. 30 Rock did a live episode. And it is entirely that thing where they are literally running from set to set. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's no cuts. And there's no cuts. Brilliant. Yeah, so I think 
one of the definitely I just have this massive memory of the very first time I watched it and the whole kind of thing oh they're in Korea oh you know they've been captured blah 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 and then this it's almost straight away you're suddenly sitting in what seems like um you know a, a tea party yeah you're well, not a tea party sorry a lecture by by an old lady yeah. uh, with a bunch of old ladies and Lawrence Harvey and Frank Sinatra are sitting there like staring into space and I just remember thinking what the hell yeah. is going on? I have no clue what this is. And of course, by the end of that scene, you've got Frank Sinatra sort of waking up in a yeah. sweat. Um, and you sort of think, ah, okay, that was a dream. Yeah. But it's much more, it, it, it becomes much more complex than just a dream. It does. And um, I just wanted to do a little bit more plot just before yes, we, we, move, we move on. So as you say, the whole platoon have been, have been brainwashed. Frank Sinatra is not the only person having this dream. Other, other members of the platoon are having it as well, including a black soldier called Al. And in his dream, all the ladies are black. They're black yeah. church ladies, yeah. uh, which is, is just really, really nice uh, Nice uh, view, I think. Though, as you say, the whole platoon have been brainwashed, including Shaw. And I'm just, I'm just going into this plot now because mm. I think it feeds into what what we're going to say next. Mm. His his trigger, if you like, what sets him off is uh, a pack of cards, and specifically the Queen of Diamonds. Whenever he sees the Queen of Diamonds, he does kind of whatever he's told. And it's clear over the course of the film, and Frank Sinatra's character, uh, Major. Marco finds this out is that he's he's trained he's been trained to be an assassin mm. so he will he will be triggered and he will assassinate who he's meant to assassinate more of which later but I think uh, you wanted to talk a little bit about Frank Sinatra didn't you well yeah I did it, it's just a very strange moment I think in American culture um, where Frank Sinatra and the presidency of the United States seem to become strangely intertwined. So I, the basic timeline is, um, in 1954, um, as the follow-up to his Oscar-winning turn-in From Here to Eternity, which, along with his uh, long-playing album In the Wee Small Hours, had basically reinvented Frank Sinatra completely uh, from a failing career to you know the person who was going to become one of the biggest stars on the planet. Um, and uh, he did a film called Suddenly, which is based around uh, he's the leader of a criminal gang who are going to assassinate the president from uh, you know a suburban the window of a suburban house. At the very same time, um, he and the presidential hopeful John F. Kennedy were starting to um, have a friendship, and um, um, JFK uh, was almost an honorary member of what came to be known as the Rat Pack mm-hmm. or the Clan, and they were party buddies. Um, I, I think it's probably uh, very well known that now we know that um, it was Frank Sinatra who introduced JFK to Marilyn Monroe, uh, with whom he had an affair. But he also uh, introduced JFK to a woman called Judith Campbell. Um the next sort of thing that happened was, yes, was JFK getting elected in 1960. Uh, Frank Sinatra campaigned on his behalf. That was the beginning, really, of a connection ever since that has stayed between actors, singers, show business types are expected yeah. to endorse mm-hmm. a candidate yeah. and, you know, do benefits on their behalf and et cetera, et cetera. And Sinatra had, you know, rumours are that Sinatra had been promised some kind of part in the administration. Oh, really? Can you imagine? Can you believe it? (laughs) Um, Of course, all this is going on while, of course, um, all the rumours that persisted throughout his life that Frank Sinatra was very heavily connected with the mafia. And, of course, uh, JFK's brother, uh, the new Attorney General, uh, Robert F. Kennedy, was on a mission to 
eliminate the mafia. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, in 1962, uh, we get the Manchurian Candidate coming out about yet another uh, assassination plot against a presidential hopeful, yeah. uh, not a president. Um, the Hoover tapes, uh, this is J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI. Um, nobody's ever found out exactly what was on those tapes, but what whatever was on those tapes when they were delivered to the Kennedys and the Democratic Party uh, caused Frank Sinatra to be immediately blacked, uh, ghosted uh, by really? Kennedy and his inner circle and the White House, uh, which made uh, Sinatra absolutely furious. And, of course, a year later, um, JFK was assassinated. Now, uh, yeah, no, that sounds very much like... Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't... I didn't realize how Frank Sinatra had him yeah, killed. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and Jimmy Hoffa. And, yeah. Yeah, no, no. Uh, and Shergar and... Uh, yeah. you know, no. Um, but what I am saying is... It was this very strange nine-year sort of thing between where the symbiosis of Frank Sinatra's art, Frank Sinatra's personal life, and the political campaigns and yeah. personal life of JFK all seemed to coalesce. Yeah. And, um, you know, I guess the, the, the last thing to say about that is that the Manchurian candidate came out um, in October 1962, apparently right in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. Um, it's a film about, you know, paranoia about communism and the moment in sort of human history where we got closest to a nuclear war uh, which was caused by America's paranoia about communism um, was right in the middle of that yeah. film coming out. It could not have been more timely. Yeah, yeah. So the um, the novel was written in 1959 by uh, Richard Condon who apparently all his, all his novels were political satire but the films that were made of them tended to be a slightly more po-faced. And, mm. But you, I think you, in The Manchurian Candidate, you can still see some of that humour. I think it's, it's I really, it's really, really funny. I really agree. So, uh, for instance, there's... Um, so Eleanor and her, her senator husband, he's forever kind of making statements about there's this number of communists in the Department of Defence, there's this number of card-carrying communists in the Department of Defence. But she keeps feeding... She's the, she's the power behind the throne and she keeps feeding him different numbers. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one day over breakfast, he's like, look, we need to simplify this. Just give me a number of how many communists there are. And then, um, you know, we see him very kind of deliberately pouring ketchup from his from his Heinz ketchup bottle and the very next scene is that there are 57 card carrying members of the communist party so it, you know it's it's not it's not without without no. its humor and in fact the um the chinese uh Army scientist general. I'm not quite sure who he is. He's called uh, he's called Yen Lo in the film, although he's played by an actor who was Anglo Egyptian. Mm. And the other main kind of Chinese again in quotes mm. character, who's mm. the, the kind of the servant valley mm. interpreter who comes houseboy, the houseboy who comes into it later on. Uh, is is his his name is Chung Jin in the film, but in real life he's Henry Silva and he's an American Spanish. Uh, guy, so yeah. it was just yeah. like, who's around? Who's around? Yeah, you'll do. You look, you look Chinesey-ish. I do. I do have to mention a favorite scene in terms of. Uh, I think I was. Say, I said to you, Lindsay, a few months ago. I, I watched the Manchurian Candidate yeah. a few months ago, which was the first time. In, I don't know, maybe ten years. Yeah, I yeah. and I watched it, and for the first time ever of watching it, I suddenly thought. This film's even better if you watch it as a comedy. I think it is. I think it is. Because I, th I think you didn't you say something about Doctor Strangelove or something yeah. and it does have that. It's not quite as overtly funny. slapstick as, no. as that necessarily, but it's really funny. And that Kung Fu fight is Yes, thank hilarious. you. Thank you. Hilarious. You read my mind. Well, how could you not? Because, you know, like, 
much like uh, Keanu Reeves in The Matrix, apparently Frank Sinatra knows Kung Fu. <laughs> or does he? It's a very odd... It is the most bizarre, <coughs> excuse me, mutant martial art. <laughs> I, I, it, it's just... And and what I found myself thinking, and again, it's, you know, these connections popping off in my mind, you know, watching more and more of it and thinking, this really, this film opened the door for Doctor Strange. It did. It it it's, it looks the same. It, it Was it after Doctor Strange Love or before? Wasn't it just well, before? Well, this is 62. When's Doctor Strange Love? I thought it was 63. Oh, okay. Anyway, I might be wrong. Um, so um, apologies if I am. But definitely the, there's a connection between the way this film looks and the way it's framed and the way it's shot and its attitude, its despairing and mocking attitude to American power um, that are really similar. So, of course, that puts into your mind Peter Sellers' performance in Doctor Strangelove. And um, the next thing I'm watching this Kung Fu fight, well, karate fight, I think it's supposed to be at the time, and I'm thinking... This is Inspector Clouseau and, and yeah, Burt Clue. It really is. This is what this is. Didn't think of that. Not now, Kato. <laughs> yeah, it really it. is. Not... I mean, but perhaps even more racially insensitive than that yeah. one because this is Henry Silva. I don't know, but it's. Um, I, I saw a making of well, a kind of a revisiting that the uh, John Frankenheimer, the screenwriter, and Sinatra had done. This was in 1988. Mm. It was made, and Frank Sinatra kind of holds up his broken pinky to the camera and says, "That has never worked right since my kung fu fight." Wow. <laughs> Twenty. Six years later or something. Wow. <laughs> yeah. He did look distressed at one yeah. point, so maybe that's why. Well, apparently he wasn't meant to. There's a, there's a point where he, he goes to, to um, attack Chung Jin, who's near a table, and the actor got the wrong thing and he... He hit the table. He hit the table Ooh, and that's when he broke his ouch. pinky. And he broke the table as well, but not in a kind of... Uh, wow. Yeah. The power of Frank Sinatra. Well, I know. He karate know. chopped a table in half. Yeah, is that what you're telling exactly. me? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that fight is, is hilarious. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, but I know one thing that you do know quite a bit about, Lindsay, is um, McCarthyism and the blacklist. And I did kind of want to ask you what your take on watching The Manchurian Candidate is from that context because um, yeah. Johnny Islin Islin, yeah. He's Joe McCarthy, right? Uh, except dumber, or although maybe Joe McCarthy was dumb, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. But certainly, yeah. So, um, what, what I guess what became known as McCarthyism, there'd been all these committees for a number of years set up to investigate threats to the US, but during the Cold War, these threats explicitly and solely became communism. So, in 1947, uh, the existing House of Un-American Activities Committee had already been in existence for a couple of years but they started to hold hearings into the communist influence in in Hollywood Um, and this led to the formal blacklisting of 10 writers and directors known as the Hollywood 10 but also the formal and informal boycotting of over 300 other writers, directors and actors. So it had a big um, big impact on the, on the film industry. And the studios started producing very uh, kind of anti-communist films to show their patriotism because, you know, they were in trouble. They could see what was, what was happening. So films like The Woman on Pier 13 or the uh, hilarious My Son John, which if you haven't seen it, no, is an I've absolute seen, treat. I've it's got an, it on my playlist. It's an absolute treat. It is so funny. Helen Hayes, her son, is a communist. Boy, it's funny. It's very <laughs> okay, funny. Okay, I've got to watch that movie. Yeah. But, um, I, I mean, it all it all kind of comes full circle because uh, one of the early earliest members of the House of Un- 
and American Activities Committees was one Richard Nixon as yes. a young junior senator. Of course he was. And of course, by the time the Manchurian candidate is made, he's just lost the election to JFK. Yes. Yeah. And there's a physical resemblance between the actor playing yeah. Eislin and Richard Nixon, yeah. isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, and this... Uh, this was really kind of the height of the Cold War, as you say, it kind of culminated in 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis. But the Korean War, which features prominently the Manchurian candidate, obviously one of the proxy wars that was kind of um, waged between America and, and Russia, sorry, Soviet Union and the United States, I should say. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as as a, a part of the, the proxy war, which was part of the, the Cold War. And and the precursor to Vietnam. And, yeah. and, you know, it set a tone for American foreign policy that they always appear to be on at war with somebody, yeah. um, generally about something that's not really any of their business. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway. But, well, yeah. And, uh, yeah, thank God those days have come to an end. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah. But uh, so, so the novel was written and the film was made kind of at a time or just following a time of kind of extreme awareness of kind of communism and, 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 and anti-communist fervour. And that's really what Eleanor and Senator Eislin are kind of there to represent. Just that kind of, I guess you can see that some of some of that this day, but uh, these days in, in Rep- Republicans, they're, they're super furious about something. And yeah, uh, yeah. maybe maybe not so much communism these days, but um, other various Absolutely. other things. And I, I, I just love that it, it's a really clever thing. And you know, it's, this is a film that is 60 years old, but if you watch this movie and see Johnny Eislin's, um, what's the word, debating style, yeah. um, you're <laughs> going to see yeah. something that we've been looking at very, very recently. Yeah. Because all he does is shout a few meaningless accusations at people over and over and over again. No matter what's being said to him, he yeah. just keeps shouting the accusations. And it's kind of like, wow, this has never, you know... This has never changed. Yeah. The, the, and John Frankenheimer and, and his crew and, um, and Sinatra as a producer, they got this. They got this. Yeah. This is what political discourse has become. Yeah. It did. And maybe this is a dangerous angle to go down, but I, I, did, I was thinking, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I was thinking, is political assassination always wrong? But anyway, mm. we'll maybe leave that for another yeah, day. We'll, yeah, that, that <laughs> seems like a bigger subject. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let me, let me give you a bit more plot then, shall yes. I? Yes. Yeah. So um, it turns out that uh, Shaw has been brainwashed, uh, as Gary mentioned, so that he will kill the presidential candidate of the unnamed party, whichever party it it is. Mm. Um, Shaw is being handed over to his American operative. Now, who can his American operative be? Mm. Um, The fact that he's triggered by the Queen of Diamonds might give you uh, some kind Mm -hmm. of clue, but the American operative who is going to kind of handle the final details for his assassination attempt is his mother, Eleanor. Yes, absolutely. And in a very powerful scene, uh, she talks to him about what's going to happen and kisses him full on the lips. It's... Yeah, I was sort of reading a bit about this, and apparently the the the, the Condon novel, um, I mean, incest is is full on right. in the novel, and you know they all looked at that and sort of said, okay, we don't want to get rid of the incest because it's powerful, um, but we we there's no way we're going to get away with you know them actually having sex, yeah. So that we're going to you know compromise a full blown kiss on the lips, and the way it's cut is absolutely brilliant because it happens. And then it's cut so quick to to the next scene that you're left both firstly shocked and then secondly thinking, did 
did that actually happen? Was that yeah. was that a lingering kiss? Maybe it wasn't because the edit was so quick. Yeah. And it's it's brilliant and chilling. And um, I was hoping we could maybe chat about Angela Lansbury because yeah. let's just say you know, I, I want to talk about Lawrence Harvey um, and I'll talk about Lawrence Harvey. But the star of this film is uh, Angela Lansbury, who plays uh, Raymond's mother and delivers one of the most powerful villain performances in film history, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's absolutely true. And I should say, I mean, she was always cast a little bit older than she was. Mm. At the time of this, she was only three years older than Lawrence Harvey. Yeah, and, and you know what? I, I'm not even going to feign surprise. I did read that somewhere and I was kind of like stunned because yeah. she, they, she, they really do look... You accept, like, you yeah, accept, totally accept it. Accept it as uh, her, her as his mother. Um, they've also both got very English accents. I mean, they both yeah. are English. Well, he's he's, he's uh, yeah, they're both English. Well, he's actually Lithuanian Jewish, but we'll get okay. on to that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I stand corrected. I thought he was English, but he's he's not American, and they no. both got they both got quite English accents, which is not kind of commented on at, at, at anything. I should say, um, also, Angela Lansbury was also Elvis's mother in Blue Hawaii. Oh, my God. And she's good. only 10 years older than Elvis. So, of uh, course. Yeah. yeah, good one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but for, for people who know her mainly as Jessica Fletcher in Murder, She Wrote, she's had a long and storied kind of cin- cinema and theatre career, yeah. as well as TV. Yeah. Uh, so she started off uh, just when she was 17, 18 in Gaslight and the following year, Portrait of Dorian Gray. Mm-hmm. So Gaslight was 1944, I think. And she was Oscar nominated for both of these films. Right. Wow. Uh, Best okay. Supporting Actress. Yeah. Um, as as she was actually for Manchurian Candidate as yeah, well, yeah. Uh, so she didn't she didn't win uh, those Oscars, but she did get an, an honorary Oscar later. She's still alive, by the way. She's like ninety seven. Is she? Is she? Yeah. So what is it about this specific performance, though, Lindsay? Because, I mean, you know, it, it's it's really it's so hard to describe in words. And I wondered what your take on it was. You know, it, it, there's all sorts of villain performances in films that are fun. You know, they're either they're either really scary, yeah, um, or they're fun, yeah. Um, and this is a tough one because it's a, this film is already treading a line between this is a serious thriller, yeah. and this is a comedy, yeah. Um, and somehow she managed to traverse all that and run the film. Yeah, <laughs> I, th- I think I think she has no truck with the comedic side of it actually. Um, the, the, none of her lines are humorous. She's just she's just this power. All the way through, Absolutely. and of course, it, it turns out you know the reason that she's involved in this is that she is a high up, a high up communist. You've got to assume because she's yeah. in in touch with all these kind of communist leaders, and this anti communist fervor is just a, a a kind of a smokescreen. Yeah. Um. Her in in real life, in fact, her father was a card carrying member of the communist really? party in in Britain. Good yeah. knowledge. Yeah. Good knowledge. But yeah, she just she she brings this kind of steeliness to it, and as I say, if you've only seen her as kind of cuddly, twinkly Jessica mm. Fletcher, you you will be surprised at the steel that yeah. she that she brings to this she is absolutely focused all the way through on this but then but that and what makes the performance i think so memorable is steel yeah sensuality and it's yeah. there's she exudes a sexual power as well and probably the key scene of the entire movie is where she brings Raymond into a room oh yeah and basically completely blows the cover to the audience that she is the, yeah. the the operative 
Um, and she plays that scene. She starts off looking almost weary. She's pit, She's sitting right next to a gigantic queen of diamonds, yeah. which there is a reason for that. In yeah, yeah. But she's sitting right next to a gigantic queen of diamonds. She starts off weary. And then stands up. The camera, of course, is staying in a subordinate, subordinate yeah, angle to yeah. her because she is looming over all of us um, and, you know, delivers this kind of... And it's getting more and more intense. And you can see that this slightly fussy, annoying right-wing person is 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 actually a different level of powerful yeah. and clever yeah. than, than we thought. Um, and then the sort of scene where she is being intimate with her own son and then she essentially issues a threat to her bosses yeah. which, which is basically yeah. you know I you know I, I will never forgive them for what they've done to you they made me make make you into you know the, the person who's going to do this and you know when we're in power I'm going to you know deliver power to them that they never they never imagined possible yeah. and it's kind of like oh yeah and, and you buy then it. You buy she it. kisses her own son yeah. it's it is Brilliant and reckless and outrageous. And if Angela Lansbury's performance is even slightly wrong, it's either camp yeah. or just just too unpleasant to yeah. watch. Um, it, it's But she's absolutely brilliant, yeah. mesmerising. She won the Supporting Actor for this one, didn't she? She, she didn't, no. She didn't win no, it? No. no. Oh, okay. No. Just a nomination. Just a nomination. She um, she won several Tonys, though. Yeah. And Golden yeah. Globes, if they, if they matter. Yeah, I guess they, they don't. One, <laughs> <laughs> um, two last facts I, I know about her. She turned down the role of Nurse Ratchet in oh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, that makes huge sense. And uh, Peter Ustinoff, that big blowhard anecdotal yeah. Yeah. actor, was her brother-in-law. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. So you imagine oh, like over one. Thanksgiving, she'd be like, oh God, Peter, shut up. <laughs> yeah. I oh, know you the, met the Shah of Iran. Yeah. I don't care. Not the dear Larry story again, please. <laughs> no. Dear, 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 dear Larry. Um, so talk about dear Larry. Yes. yes. Perfect. So great. Oh my um, God, that was very good. There you go. Uh, Lawrence Harvey. Um, Lawrence Harvey, I'm going to just talk a little bit about Lawrence Harvey because I feel he's one of the most maligned actors in film history. Um, there was even, um, and I'm going to try and find the quote here because it just sort of sums up what critics seem to think um, about Lawrence Harvey. Um, and um, so basically he's he's the, you know, the leading male in a, a, a critically acclaimed movie um, in The Manchurian Candidate. And what one critic wrote uh, was... Harvey's role required him to act like a zombie, and several critics cited it as his first convincing performance. Yeah. And it's just like, wow! Even even though he's pretty much holding together a film that could fall apart, at the, you know, no credit whatsoever. I kind of wonder whether it was because he was too good looking. Um, he was just stupidly good looking, perfect cheekbones, perfect shoulders, perfect hair. Um, just the king of swag. Do you need a glass of water? Well, you know, <laughs> seriously, I, no, I, I'm, I make my man crush. You know, if the fact that you know, unfortunately, he's been dead for fifty-two years, which obviously doesn't Aww. doesn't you know sort of help the man crush. But I, it's it's he he's just a fantastic movie presence, and the fact that he is not necessarily the most you know he, he, the guy who's going to put on thirty pounds to to you know play a boxer and punch a wall um, doesn't to me uh, you yeah. Know, uh, denigrate his his performances as a, as a really really great lead actor um he's also an interesting character because 
He wasn't just hiding the fact that he was Jewish um, in throughout his entire career. He was born in Lithuania, uh, born a Jew. Um, and when he started his career, acting career in England, um, was immediately told, oh, you know, nobody nobody wants to know you're Jewish or in fact Lithuanian. So yeah. let's call you something terribly, terribly yeah, English. Yeah. And um, the apocry- possibly apocryphal story is that he was on a bus with Sid James um, uh, of Carry really? On Thought fame. And they went past Harvey Nichols and Sid said to him, well, it's either Lawrence Harvey or La- Lawrence Nichols. And he went, <laughs> oh, right, I'll do Harvey. <laughs> I don't know if this is true or not. Um, uh, I'm trying to think. Thank God they weren't going past a, you know, a, a branch of what would McDonald's or yeah, uh, yeah. Burger King maybe. Absolutely, <laughs> it could have been Lawrence Burger King. Exactly. <laughs> but also, um, he was also hiding um, to 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 you know to, to most people who knew him and prepared to speak to speak about it after his death. You know, he was gay and um, he hid it to the point of um, being having living with one woman, a, a, um, a actress, Hermina Badley, and then getting married three times after that, yeah. two women. Um, That's and, what you had to do in those and, days. Yeah, uh, people, you know, you've got to remember, uh, until 1968, it was actually illegal and you could be put in prison uh, to be to engage in homosexual activity. So... Um, so, and um, uh, coupled with the fact that, of course, you probably wouldn't be a popular leading man uh, at the time yeah. if you know everybody knew you were gay. So, um, there perhaps is some context, as far as I'm concerned, for the fact that his performances, in some ways, were cold um, and emotionally closed down. I think actors yeah. are often exactly what they are, and um, it's very interesting that you know one of the three performances that I love of his was uh, in his, uh, the film a sort of musical, Espresso Bongo, which introduced um, the delights of Cliff Richards um, acting to the world. Um, and where Lawrence Such Harvey, as they are. Yeah. And when Lawrence Harvey was the lead of the film and basically played an outrageous, almost parody of a Jewish hustler. Yeah. Um, and you wondered how much self-loathing, even as he, yeah. you know, carried the film, um, was in that I remember that. that it's portrayal. a very kind of overt accent, isn't yeah. it? A very kind of comedy accent almost. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and his other uh, benchmark role, which was his breakthrough role, was in um, Room at the Top, which was a hard-bitten um, kitchen sink drama, angry young man film um, about a working class man trying to get on and sort of climbing over everyone as he did so. Um, he was magnificent in those three films. Um, he died very young, uh, in his 40s, I think, of uh, cancer. Uh, stomach cancer brought about by uh, too much alcohol and too many cigarettes. And uh, But he did have a daughter, and uh, I just want to mention, uh, her name was Domino. Um, she A film was made about her uh, because she was a bounty hunter. That's right. <laughs> I remember that. And she also died very young of an overdose of painkillers, oh. I think it was. And, um, yeah, just a very odd yeah. odd life and, and who gave birth to an odd life. Yeah. And, um, and I think a wonderful performance in The Manchurian Candidate because he really has to veer between... I'm not here, uh, and I'm intensely here, and really, really despairingly unhappy and angry. And uh, he switches between the two things, I think, seamlessly. I think there's a scene with Frank Sinatra where he finally breaks down and shows Frank Sinatra who he is as a person and why he's a broken man. And I think he acts it really beautifully. And 
I think know. that's true. I think I think his character in this is is kind kind of the same as well. He's kind of there and not there, and the only mm. time he really kind of comes alive. Um, so it's, it's made very clear right from the start of the film that he is not popular with his yes. his fellows yes. in the platoon, and that he's cold hearted. Um, and the only time he kind of comes alive is he is telling Frank Sinatra, as you say, about a um, a kind of lost love who who yeah. returns and comes back into his life. Uh, later on, and um, she comes to the the, the costume party that uh, Eleanor and Senator Eisling are holding, coincidentally as a giant queen of diamonds, mm. uh, to you know to to nobody's to nobody's benefit particularly. But um, just to, I, I'll carry on with the plot. And mm. then, so. Uh, Raymond is due to assassinate a presidential hopeful in the hopes that the Senator Islin, who's been kind of nominated for vice president, will then become the presidential candidate, will then make his way to the White House where he can be worked. He's, I mean, he does not seem to be a communist, this guy. He just seems to be a useful... A dupe. A useful tool, a useful idiot um, for Eleanor to, to, to make those plans happen. Um, there's a, a left-wing senator... Uh, who stands in her way and one of the first things that she gets Shaw to do um, Lawrence Harvey's character to do is to kill the senator the right left wing senator I should say who happens to be the father of his girlfriend now wife Um, because he's also been brainwashed into killing any witnesses he kills his father-in-law and then he kills his wife who has seen it happen and this breaks him so his final task is to kill the presidential candidate um he takes aim. He's he's a sniper in a kind of convention hall. He takes aim, and he shoots Senator Iceland, and he shoots Eleanor, and then he shoots himself, mm. and so he has he has foiled their plot. And I just I think you did mention the kind of real life parallels earlier, and I, mm. I just think it's really interesting that basically a year before, quite a, an unbelievable presidential assassination. Yeah, there's this fictionalized unbelievable presidential assassination so yeah. I was just thinking you know Lee Harvey Oswald whatever the, whatever the truth is of yes. whether he worked alone whether he was part of a cabal whether he was, he was just a useful tool like yes. Senator Island was I don't know yep. but but he was um, he was killed on live TV by Jack Ruby yes yeah, uh, absolutely. Kind of coming from the police cells. I was reading up about Jack Ruby because I thought Did Jack Ruby died shortly after that, but no, he didn't. Um, so he, he he was sent to he was sent to prison. Um, but he he had he was a kind of low level mob guy in yep, Texas. He absolutely. had all these relationships with the police. They would turn a blind eye to the clubs that he ran mm-hmm. in return for specific favors. So anyway, Jack Ruby kills Oswald. Mm-hmm. We see it happening. It's on telly. That mm. footage exists. You know, mm. it is. It happened on live TV. Yes. Get sent to prison. Three years later, uh, they're talking about a retrial for him because he was a patriot, really. Mm. It's like we've seen them kill. However, he died of cancer before this retrial could happen. But wow. I guess that's Texas justice. It's like, wow. did it happen? Yes, we all saw it happen. But did you, it happen? Did it? <laughs> we all is saw it happen. Is that fake news? Is that yeah, fake news? Yeah, exactly. And here we are again, full circle. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, it's, it's a. I think it's a quite shocking end, um, all told. Um, but I wanted to ask something, Lindsay, because I because I watched it again, and maybe I just get too caught up in the action and the story and the beauty of the way things are shot and everything. But Lawrence Harvey's the way Lawrence Harvey is dressed to go mm. to the convention. Is there a reason for it that he looks like a sort of Catholic priest? 
yes, uh, because Eleanor says to him, "You'll need you'll need to escape, and you'll you'll more easily escape as a priest than you would have." Right, else. right, okay, good, thank you. Because uh, just to point out, you know, um, oddly, I've just been um, reading a book by David Thompson about um, about. Uh, which is partly about how movies have made murder look cool and sexy and maybe it isn't a good thing. Mm. Um, Lawrence Harvey looks unbelievably cool and sexy yeah. <laughs> in this yeah. Catholic priest get-up and Luke looks ultra cool uh, when he kills uh, the two people that he ought mm. to kill and we're, you know, scarily happy that he's killed. And um, and that, that whole scene is shot brilliantly. It's in this incredible flurry of edits between what looks like newsreel People yeah. confuse Frank Sinatra and they're smashing into the camera. You know, it's just unbelievable. It's just bravura yeah. filmmaking. Yeah, um, absolutely. Fantastic. And it's it's. I mentioned Janet Lee right at the beginning, and not since because yeah. she she has no part really. I mean, her, her she seems to be there for her and Frank Sinatra to fall in love with, to fall in love with each other immediately. And then she's kind of got no part to play. Can I dwell a little on, because it's one of my favourite scenes in the movie, uh, it's the scene where she essentially hits on him yeah. in the train. Yeah. It's one of my favourite scenes, not because it's integral to the plot, because it plainly isn't. It is not. It has nothing to do with anything. But it's just unique, again, in film. Um, how many films... Okay, firstly, how many films do you see where the woman is the predator... Uh, and the man it, it is not. But also the context is Frank Sinatra is having an absolute panic attack on this train about these nightmares and he doesn't have a clue what's going on yet. We haven't reached that part of the film where he started to work it out. And he is a sweaty, paranoid um, mess who is on the verge of a breakdown. And Janet Lee, <laughs> the Janet Lee character, thinks it's a really cool idea to try and pull him. Yeah. At this and keeps persisting. Yeah. And he they, they play it brilliantly because Sinatra is not he's so freaked out he he's not make deliberately not making eye contact. Yeah. So presumably this is a directorial thing. You know, don't look at her. Yeah. Don't look at this woman who yeah. is trying yeah. to pull you. And but he's managed to keep himself together enough to say it to respond to her in these kind of very gentle kind of way of like you know she asks him a question and he does answer it he doesn't go go away lady or anything yeah, like yeah, that yeah 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 um and you know at one point she just gives him her address and you're just thinking so basically there's this sweaty paranoid man who won't make eye contact yeah, with you yeah. on a train um and you are so convinced that you know yeah. he is the man for you that you're just going to give him your address but those two uh, we're talking great you know great actors in Sinatra and Janet Lee and they, they they make that scene work and i think it's really memorable and Possibly the oddest meat cute in, <laughs> yeah. in, in film history. Well, it's a meat sweat, really, isn't it? Yeah, the meat sweat. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I buy that. I, I think it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb because she really doesn't have any other part to play no. in the, the plot. No. Um, and I, I don't know if it, her character is there. I haven't read the novel, I have to say. Maybe mm. maybe it's a bigger role in the, in the novel. In the film, it seems like, oh, let's give him a girlfriend so it doesn't look like he's too interested in Shaw. It's how, how I'm reading it. It's how I'm reading it. Yeah, interesting. You know, uh, yeah, the, maybe, kind of the, maybe, the, the, maybe the Frank insisted. Yeah. Frank insisted. Yeah, 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 yeah. maybe, maybe. Um, uh, yeah, you're right. Um, Janet Lee's character, Janet Lee, great actress, waste, wasted in a lot of ways in this part. But I'm only glad that that she's in it because I do th love that scene yeah, in the train, yeah. and I think it's unique, and it's another one of those. 
John Frankenheimer came up with some unique things. And, um, you know, I, I'm not going to bang on too much about John Frankenheimer. He, you know, he had a sort of glory phase, really, an imperial phase as a film director between 1961's The Young Savages, which was a teen movie starring Burt Lancaster, um, and um, around 1966. Um, and, you know, he made a, most of his films had some kind of moral message. Yeah. Um, and in 1966, he directed a film which, like The Manchurian Candidate, I think is like a stalking horse for all the big changes that are to come in Hollywood from 1967 onwards um, with the hits, the success of Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate. Um, it's a very, very strange science fiction film mm. um, about uh, an elderly or you know a middle-aged man who decides to take advantage of uh, secret and shadowy new technology, which enables him to be reborn as another person, uh, basically by putting on, yeah, the um, the, the skin of a corpse, uh, the body of a corpse, um, and that corpse um, is is Rock Hudson. Yeah. Um, which enables, much like uh, Frank Sinatra um, in Manchurian Candidate, much like Burt Lancaster in Young Savages. You know, an an actor, very well established actor, pulled out of their comfort zone, yeah, uh, to do something odd. But but Rock Hudson is way out of his comfort zone, yeah, smashes it out the park. He's great in that movie, and it's another film I I would yeah. recommend. Did you mention the title of the film? Seconds. Did okay. I not say so? I'm not sure you did. So I just oh sorry. Seconds. It. Yeah, seconds is great. Seconds is 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 absolutely great. Um. Have we done? I think we might have. Have we done? Well, Is I, there anything more that we could say about the Manchurian candidate? Well, I would just urge people to see it. Now, as you know, on uh, What's Wrong With This Picture, we like to allocate a very specific rating system to each film that we watch. And this film, uh, we're going to rate for quality. And I think we should, we should do it out of paranoid consp- conspiracies. All right. So we'll rate it out of, 10 for, uh, out of 10 paranoid conspiracies for both quality and for weirdness. Gary, you go first. Uh, nine paranoid conspiracies for quality, nine paranoid conspiracies for weirdness. I'm going to go ten paranoid conspiracies for quality. Whoa. I, think it's, I think it's excellent. Whoa. I think it's very good. I think, as you say, you know, the, 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 plot's, the plot is a jumpy plot. It takes, takes a while to get there. The camera work is great. The acting is, is great. Angela Lansbury yeah. is great. It gets a ten from me. Whoa. And in terms of weirdness, I'm going to give it nine paranoid conspiracies. That seems reasonable to me. Um, yep, um, nothing more to say about The Manchurian Candidate except it's, you know, we with all the films we're talking about on what's wrong with it, uh, with this picture, um, we're, we're recommending them. The Manchurian Candidate is a film you have to see. Yeah. Um, it's it's a, cle- a key film in American film history about a key time in a lot of ways in American and world history. And I it's done brilliantly and I urge you to see it. Yeah, it's got kung fu, it's got incest, it's got politics, <laughs> it's got Angela Lansbury. Go see it. Till next time. Bye. What's Wrong With This Picture is brought to you by Lindsay McCulloch and Gary Mulholland and is recorded by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg. Music composed and performed by Russ Keffert. Thank you.